I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. I'm starting to get a bit more reflective than I have been in the past. At the end of 2022, I will have been hosting and producing Convo by Design for 10 years. No, really. And this one is another marker, another landmark, another very important milestone in the show. This is episode... 400. I know, 400, hard to believe, right? These 10 years have have actually flown by. You know, I I said this all the time when, when my kids were growing up. The the years are short, uh but the days are long. Days are long, years are short. Same thing. It's just you know, every day you you kind of grind through, and then before you know it, you're ten years down the down the line. It's crazy. I think the years have flown by in part because this is my second career. This is the one I'm doing because I love it and because I want to. My first was in broadcasting. For those who have been listening to the show for a while, I'll I'll spare you from having to hear the story all over again. Suffice it to say, a lot has happened in design and architecture since 2013. I think the industry looks and feels very different now than it did then. I know that. A lot of things have changed. Number one, you know, when, when I started doing this, this show and asking people, designers and architects, if they wanted to come on, many would say, yeah, absolutely. What's a podcast? It's true. We don't have to ask that question anymore. Obviously, the last three years have been incredibly transformative. But even before the pandemic, the business was changing. In this episode, I want to share some of the incredibly talented people who have been on the show over the past 10 years. I want to reshare some of their thoughts and ideas, share some of the places we've been over the past 10 years, and take a look at the next 10, what it will look like for our business. So this is going to be a longer than usual episode because it has a a lot going on. (laughs) A lot has happened in 10 years. And while I can't cover it all here, I would like to share these ideas and excerpts from a few select interviews along the way in no particular order. And I don't want to leave anyone out, but I can't include everyone. Uh, it's It's been 400 episodes. Um, but following are some of the things that really stuck with me along the way. For over two years now, you have heard about my partnership with Thermosol. So you know that I have extremely high standards for Convo by Design partnerships. Thermosol is an extraordinary partner because there is this rare combination of intuitive design, with exceptional performance. They have state-of-the-art facilities located in Round Rock, Texas, and a company that's about to celebrate 65 years offering excellence in form and function. The Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series presented by Thermosol is a programming feature that regularly showcases remarkable design talent and how they do what they do and the manner in which they do it allowing designers to emulate successful strategies and make smarter clients who know what questions for of top professionals. If you want to understand more about this company and their history, 
please check the show notes for the link to episode 221 with Thermosol third generation CEO Mitch Altman. He explains the history behind the company and really that's what makes this company so special. Combine that with the cutting edge technology, their world-class domestic facilities, and you have a company delivering predictable elegance upon which you can rely. And nowadays, how important is that? Thermosol.com. Before we get to some of the design talent, some thoughts on the future of the business, design and architecture. Number one, remote design. The pandemic sealed it. Remote design is a permanent part of the industry. That is not going to change. Designers are not realtors. Realtors work a farm or a very specific territory. Designers and architects do not need that because they they should be looking beyond the traditional borders and boundaries to develop a new clientele. As we've been discussing and exploring through the Remote Design House Tulsa project, the future of remote and virtual design is rife with opportunity and peril alike. So tread carefully. Stellar customer service. You will provide stellar customer service or suffer the consequences. It's really as as simple as that. Um, over the last three years, customer service in, in on the manufacturing side in, in in particular, has suffered a bit. Um, not all, but some. And it needs to come back. And it needs to come back in a big way because to those who manufacture, who create product for the business, the designers need you on behalf of their clients. Um, and they're your life's blood. And you should be providing designers and architects with the customer service that they deserve. New product discovery. This is an interesting one. Specification and respecification has fundamentally changed. And because of that, everyone is looking for that next new name, that next new face, that next new creative, that next new designer, um, the product that is going to fill a void that's new and different. And because of that, new creatives have an opportunity to make their mark. This is, this is a very important, this is a critical time for discovery. And I think it's a renaissance. It's a golden age of design and architecture. And I think we're going to see that in the future. It's important. And, um, you know, I was recently at the West Edge Design Fair in Dallas, the first edition, and I got to meet some new creatives um, and those who are promoting them. It's going to be a really interesting time in the business. So go find those new designers, go find those new creatives and share their story. It's so much fun to find new products for me that that is that is the feel when I when I get to speak with new creatives that is those that I have not yet spoken with. This first clip was from my conversation with Julian Lennon who has entered a new chapter in his own life with a new album uh, and a new collection of photographs that are offered at RH through General Public, Portia de Rossi's company that represents emerging artists. I really loved my chat with Lennon, and here's here's what that sounded like. Yeah, well, you know, on on the musical front, uh, it'll be the circumstance will be I'll be able to achieve sounds uh, and mixes 
that professionals, some professionals will go, how did you do that? Doing it the way that you did it. It, it shouldn't work that way. And I'll go, it sounds good to me. That's all I know. How, how I got there, I've no idea, but, you know, um, same thing with the cameras. You know, I, I'm really not a tech guy with the cameras, auto for the most part. I'm getting a little closer um, and it, it all depends on time, uh, where I'm going, what I'm doing. Uh, do I have time to set things up? Generally not. Um, uh, I, I always feel like I'm on the move one way or another. And even with doing, you know, I, I mean, in regards to photography, there's never, I've never had a sign of a, a, a real kind of setup as such. You know, I could never go into, you know, fashion scenario and start shooting, but it's just not my cup of tea, you know. Give me, you know, street photography, guerrilla photography, any any day. That's my, that's where I get a kick is capturing something that maybe you shouldn't or is unlikely. And uh, um, I mean, not in every circumstance, but it's all about not knowing what you're really gonna, what you're letting yourself in for. Uh, that's, you know, it's a good anxiety. Uh, I, I suffer a lot from bad anxiety, but that's a good one, you know. The idea behind it and, and where I was, one of the things that I, I, I love the work and you have a new collection, which is available through restoration hardware. Apparently. And apparently. Well, um, it is. And I yeah, love, I and, I, and, I, and I love the work. And, you know, in listening to you speak about it, um, the idea about you getting lost and getting out there and going and taking and taking pictures. And I, it's funny because I, I kind of relate that when you talk about anxiety, is there anything more freeing than getting away from everything and everyone to just go be in your own head for a while and find something that makes you happy? It's, it's the only thing that saves me. Let me tell you, it really is. But because of the way uh, we all communicate now, there's no space left for yourself for half the time um especially with an iphone you know or any kind of portable um there's no freedom um and that's why getting on a bike getting on a motorbike and just looking at a map and just, that looks interesting and i i will just get on the bike and go uh well i'll have i'll have noticed a, f a couple of key roads but that's it and then half the fun is getting lost up in the mountains or up in the lakes or wherever. I mean, I've discovered more about where I live in the last six months by just doing that out of frustration of, of being locked down for so bloody long, excuse my French, you know, that, that this new exuberant kind of, I, I can't wait to get out there and discover things. And, um, you know, I can't say I've done a lot of photography in that realm, but it's also it's also like even with the picture behind you, dear sir, that that is taken, you know, in the back of a car. Uh, you know, a, a lot, I would say 50% of my landscapes are taken either in the back of a car, van, or a truck. And, and it's keeping my fingers crossed and hoping that what I see then and there is what's going to be on the camera. And more often than not, I've not a clue until I actually sit in front of the computer and go, 
yay or nay. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It really does come down to that. And uh, um, I, 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 uh, as I've said before on on many occasions, that more often than not, I'll take you know a, a collection of photographs home, and I, I and I won't think that I have anything. And especially if it's connect a collection as such, whether it's U two or whether it's Charlene Whitstock or, uh, or or things like that. And it's generally only through the editing process that I'll find the picture in the image or the image in the picture, one or the other, I don't know. But it's only then that I really find what I'm looking for. With most photographs that I take, I have a general view and I think there's something in there and there's something that I feel with taking that photograph, but I don't know what it is until later. I want to share another Lenin connection with you. This time with art furniture designer Dakota Jackson. Jackson has an incredible backstory, starting with his family, who were magicians. And this is Dakota telling me the story of a desk he was commissioned to build for John Lennon by Yoko Ono. I did build magic illusions uh, before I built furniture. I consider magic to be a realm unto itself where you're talking about paraphernalia. And uh, what intrigued me about that transposition from building magic illusions to building furniture was this element of the portrayal of power that these objects that we surrounded ourselves with uh, were imbued with a sense of possibility or a certain hierarchy. Uh, so I began with pieces called Furniture as Deadly Weapons or New Wonders of the World because again, I wanted them to be heroic. Uh, the connection between magic and furniture really first began with Yoko, who for John's 34th birthday, they were separated at the time, uh, and uh, wanted a desk that had a number of hidden compartments, or as she described it, more like a Chinese puzzle. I took this on not so much as in the realm of the magician, but in the realm of the, like the watchmaker, to make a precision instrument. And go back to that point about tenets of magic. Magic works only insofar as it maintains the illusion of normalcy. And the illusion of normalcy uh, has to do with, it goes back to choreography in a way. How you move in a purportedly normal or relaxed situation and then how you move in the very same way when, as Dylan would say, something's happening here, something's, going, hap something's happening and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? So that element, again, within the furniture was the fact that it just simply looked like what it was, that it was a desk and it was nothing more than a desk. If it had something about it that imbued it with this kind of sense of magical power, it wouldn't have worked. I'll tell you, just to, if I can tell it quickly, um, about, I never asked her why she wanted these compartments. 27 years later, or 37 years later, she came back to me, 25 years after John's death, and she said that this was John's favorite object, but she wanted to have it 
restored to a position where it would be just maintained. It turned out it was restored very poorly, or, or that it was stored very poorly, so we decided to rebuild it. But she asked me to open one of the compartments, and this was 37 years later. There was a 24-year-old boy who built this, and this compartment slides open, and she removes an envelope from it, out of which comes a photograph of Yoko from 37 years before, this very beautiful picture of her. And she wanted to have it so that John could keep it in a very special place, even though they weren't living together. And uh, so it took 37 years for that mystery uh, to be solved. Back to a few lessons learned along the way uh, over 10 years. You must market your brand. Creatives, designers, architects, take this to mean whatever you want. I've learned over time that since people hear what they want to hear, sometimes it's difficult to come to a universal conclusion. But I will be clear, if you want new clients or you want better clients, you must advertise or market your brand in better ways. Otherwise, and you are right in that word of mouth can work, but if you are being shared client to potential client, you're in an echo chamber. You're still dealing with many of the same clients you wish to upgrade from. Gone are the days when designers should be utilized for their knowledge base and trade discount. Designers are both creatives and futurists who solve the issues that most directly and deeply affect their clients. This is important. This is essential. This is valuable and requires proper compensation. There are virtual design services online that can provide design, designed what spaces for $40. And there are decorators on Fiverr starting at $5. If this doesn't concern you, well, it should. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. Back in my broadcast days, I watched the radio and record industries lose control over the power to move music. First, it was Napster, then social media, then Apple. Now you can buy music online. When was the last time you bought an entire album? I'll let you think about that for a minute. Unless you are into vinyl, it has probably been well over a decade since you bought a full CD. The design business is no different if a, a virtual design company can change the thought process as it relates to design from crafting curated and purposeful spaces to a simple space plan with furnishings that fit and in the right color palette, where does it end? It ends in devaluing the designer. And I do this show because I love what you do. Marketing you and your brand is crucial to the long-term health of your design business and that of the industry, full stop. Some designers who have paved their own way created a world around the design they create. One of these designers is the incomparable Bunny Williams. Williams was always very clear in her focus and what her work meant and that of her firm means. She has always been crystal clear in her views on learning from others. I'll let Bunny explain it. You can, it can save you because I hope, I, I often can say, 
no, you can't do it this way, or the curtains ought to be made this way. So experience, I can help guide people through my experience. The other thing is, when you work for someone else for a period of time, you learn all the workrooms and you learn clients. I mean, what was interesting when I was at Parish Hadley, often when, even if I worked on a job with Mr. Hadley, Albert, or Mrs. Parish, if I did a good job, that person recommended me to their friend. So when I left Parish Hadley, I left with six big projects. And they were projects that had come to me when I was in that firm. So a lot of times I think it's, if somebody's young and they hang their shingle out, you have to figure out how are you going to get your clients? You know, what is it? Are you, do you have social connections? What, what is the, what is going to bring clients to you? Because without clients, you're not going to do very well. And I do think working with an established firm, you know, I know people have worked for me, have probably clients who work with them may have gone with them, but that's life. I mean, that's what happens. Um, you you want them to succeed. So um, I think if young people are starting out, working with an established firm will introduce them to the design world, to the magazine world, to the media world, and um, it'll be it'll help them tremendously. From Bunny Williams to another icon, Martin Lawrence Ballard. I caught up with Ballard at the La Cienega Design Quarter Legends event in 2019. Martin and his team were designing their showroom window to honor Tony Duquette. This provided him with an opportunity to get back to his theatrical roots and craft in spectacular fashion. Fearless and fabulous then as now. Just listen. You know, Tony was a set decorator originally, which is actually the way a lot of great Hollywood decorators have started. And there's something about understanding those theatrics, understanding scale on screen, that makes things so interesting when you sort of translate it into an interior. Back in the day when Tony was designing houses for, you know, all of the stars, he was designing things in a way that made them shine within their interiors. So really the interiors became kind of the accessory, it became the jewel to their outfit. And for me that's so exciting because I love to make people's homes, you know, become a part of their character, become a part of their soul, and a window into their soul really. And that's sort of what the designs do. So for us to have our windows, you know, reflecting Tony Duquette's work at this, for this is really fun. And again, I find him to be kind of the iconic Hollywood decorator. And his work, his look, his vibe is now translated all over the world. And he has followers and fans all over the world of his work. Amazing things he made in his lifetime are going for huge amounts of money at auction, of which we're very lucky to have quite a few pieces of, uh, of original work here in my windows. So, yeah, it's an exciting person and it's exciting to be honoring him. Um, so it's interesting you mentioned you mentioned that he was a set decorator and you mentioned that you have some of the pieces so I'm curious having seen it but but in your thought process how did you what was the what was the process that you chose in the manner in which you wanted to channel his work into your window you know his work was all about layering and all about theatrics and so for us it was really fun to do 
um, faux materials because he used to create a lot of things. I mean, literally, he was sort of like the first wizard with a glue gun. So we've created faux paneling on our walls using an amazing wallpaper from Schumacher that looks like tortoiseshell. And then one of Tony's great favorites was malachite. So often he would paint faux malachite. In this case, we've used a great Fornacetti paper by Cole & Son to add the malachite. And then we've even used sort of silver foil fake mirrors inserted into our paneling, which actually just represents more and more the way Tony worked and the way he did those things. So one of the really fun things we have in our window, though, actually, is a chandelier. And the chandelier is very typical Tony. It's painted in a malachite green. It's got seashells applied. It's got little bits of coral and crystal. But it is totally glued together. And on examining it, you see that the central column is actually part of an old staircase. I think it's actually the banister post. So it is so Tony that he would pull you know, bits and pieces from everywhere and put it together and create something spectacular and theatrical. And that's really what honoring him and, and creating these windows is about sort of it's the high low it's the mixing of a beautiful rock crystal something with a painted stair banister so trade groups media trade shows manufacturers and showrooms step up the past three years have been draining on all of us but that is no excuse to stop trying to elevate I conduct many post-conversation interviews after I stop recording for the show. You never hear these, but I have them internally to compile internal information. I ask designers, artists, architects, what they see in the business, what the experience has been like day-to-day, and what they need from industry resources. The number one response across the board is is better customer service. Sending out samples does not constitute customer service, nor does calling on designers to see what projects they're working on. Customer service is answering the phone, returning an email within 24 hours, dropping a less important activity to find out where that chair is and when it will be delivered. Customer service is following up proactively on damaged merchandise, and if it can't be fixed, replace it quickly. If it was discontinued, Offer a suitable replacement or provide credit. Again, proactively and soon. Proactively, not reactively, because designers don't have the time to chase you down. Trade groups and trade shows. I get that it is about the per foot display, ticket and advertising revenue, and it should be. But I would challenge you to offer a deeper engagement, a better experience for those attending. There are some that do. They do it right. Salone, Maison et Objet, West Edge. But there are others who don't put a great deal of pride into the experience of those who attend your events. And I think there's a tremendous opportunity here. And media, ours is a billion-dollar industry and as such deserves a far more robust media platform. I've had a very good working relationship with the Shelter Publications over the years. It pains me to say this, but it's time for you to step up your game a little bit. This is not directed at everyone. Some do a great job, but bring back the contributors and editors. You can't cover a diverse industry like ours with a handful of writers covering everything with fewer words and images on fewer pages of edit. 
paper costs have caused some publishers to make difficult choices, cutting editorial staff and circulation. I encourage you to learn from radio and don't allow digital to take all of your readers and advertisers. Look, I'm a tactile person. I love design magazines. I want you to be around for a very long time. Diversity in design. Cultural recognition and creative attribution is inextricably tied to the business of design. And it's neither a good thing nor a bad thing. It's, it's part of the business. It's, it's more work to properly attribute. It is. Knowing the backstory of all the materials used in the work, is a, it takes a significant amount of time of, and work to document, but it also provides an incredible opportunity to elevate the narrative of the work and the byproducts that make the sum of its parts, right? It, it almost reminds me back, you know, a few years ago when the biggest conversation was about, you know, attributing photographers and designers to projects seen on social media. Attribution of textile origin, attribution of cultures, it's important. And it should be, it should be, it should be offered without asking. In 2019, I produced a conversation at the West Edge Design Fair. This was a fantastic conversation. And here's a bit from that encounter. First, you will hear from Bryant Pinkett of Landry Design Group, then Bridget Coulter, then Ron Woodson, and finally Brig and Jane closing it out. This was from a panel called Diversity in Design, Crafting Our World the Way It Should Be. And I did not feel comfortable being part of this conversation on, on stage. Instead, what I did was I was off stage. I was in the audience basically shuttling the microphone around so folks could ask questions. It was a remarkable experience, and I want you to hear a little bit of what that sounded like. There's diversity wherever I go because I'm there. Okay, so that answers your question. Um, there's a level of comfort that we give to our clients and the people that we're dealing with to one, let them know that we're capable of doing what we are capable of doing without the color or without the, the background or baggage that some people might bring. Fortunately for us, uh, the people that are attracted to us, they don't necessarily see that color. And the people who are here, I would imagine, are interested in having this conversation because they want to have more of this conversation so that it spreads throughout the country, right, and the world. So um, I think, obviously, in this day and age, with what's going on with our president and the political scene, we need to have more conversations about it, and it's going to be up to us and people like you, Josh, who produce these events, to really bring it to the forefront. And I think to the young lady's point is that uh, idea that it should be it should infiltrate everything. It's a diverse world we live in, but there is this sense of exclusivity. And in my mind, that's broken down by media, by perception, by social media, and what we put out there. And I know I've been approached for projects to do a cover on a magazine or um, somebody looking at a project. And, and I've been told things that where I've seen something similar and um, 
sometimes there's a resistance or there's a story that they want to tell that you don't fit. And then there's other stories where they want to tell that you fit, but not just fitting you in the diversity story, but just treating you like a designer. And my experience, I've been doing design for 15 years, um, and I have that experience of, I'm a multicultural black woman, and I've traveled, and I've been very lucky, and like what Ron said is your background and your story, and all of that filters who you are as an artist, and I've been lucky to grow up in this craftsman home in Berkeley, and uh, come down to Southern California, live in Africa, in London, and I've lived around the world, and that filter, it, it informs my work. And I think that the people who hire me or who are drawn to my work feel this global collected thing, this flavor and texture that they want and that's part of them. They're traveled. And I, I don't think we have the color conversation, although I'm very like, yeah, I, I'm who I am and I'm very proud and I think it makes me... Um, uh, better at what I do, and and I think that that conversation of not seeing color is uncomfortable to me because I actually want you to see my color, and I'm proud of it, and it's part of me, just like you want me to see that you're a woman, or you, you, if you're very proud of your religion, you're like this is part of who I am. We we listen to our clients, and we want to make sure we're reflecting them as well. Right. I think one misnomer um, sometimes that people have, and you speak about diversity, is okay. We've got a a panel of all African Americans, um, and sometimes people will think, "Oh, they're just gonna want to have African art in the design that that they're gonna put in my house." Completely not true. And I've I've talked to some of my Asian counterparts um, about this subject, and and some have said the same thing. It's like, okay, I'm not coming, and I'm not gonna be putting all. Asian art in your house. Um, so, but sometimes people have this perception. I've not had it, but um, it, it is something that I think sometimes people should take a look at. You, you can't pigeonhole a, a group of people who are not the majority that they're, they're going to do and, and design one particular way and because clearly if you look at the breadth of work that I have done over the years I mean it's kind of all over the board but um, there's a there's a common thread I mean I just like good design and I like glamorous design and to me that has no face no color no I just like good design and, and that's where it ends. And so, and I think that's how it should be looked at. Um, but at the same time, you know, more people of color should have inclusion. And sometimes I, I think younger African Americans, I mean, because I, I get people, young designers who have reached out to me for a long time. I'm, I'm a mentor to a, a lot of them. And you know, some of their stories are, are, are varied and they, some feel, um, how can I start? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be accepted. And it's like, no, 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 you're, you're, you got to get out there and your work has got to be what is going to propel you. You, you. you can't sit back and say, well, I'm African-American and they're not going to like me or they're not going to like my designs. 
Um, you just, you got to push. So interesting to me. Yeah, I think one of the things that I find as a young African-American woman is most of my clientele is middle-aged, Caucasian, and male. That's who pays me. That's what I grew my female-based company <laughs> off of. Um, and I think that it, there's a lot of leadership opportunity being in a minority position in anything because you understand the responsibility of standing up for what isn't popular or common thought or seems outside of the box, right? So I find that I'm constantly pushing my boundaries on cultural references that I want to bring into design elements. And if I'm like, I'm too scared to, you know, use this Cuban thing or this Tongan thing because I might not know every inch of it, I notice that I push myself a lot in doing what's uncomfortable because I think at a certain level, that's why we're not seeing enough of it. People are always scared to merge what they don't know, and they're afraid of asking the wrong question or offending somebody. Or, And when you do that, that creates the division. I think all of us see the word diversity, and we're scared of it to begin with because it, it comes with this divide. Whereas we are in an artistic, you know, medium, good design pushes the rules. Like when we walk through here and we see all of the things that we love, it's because they're a little unusual, not because it's the common norm. So I find that this is a great place to be in, in sort of celebrating diversity. And I think that a lot of times that person, or for me on the commercial side, they are longing for somebody to push them in what you know, their building looks like. And they might not be the representative to do it. So they depend on designers to sort of bring in this habitat that you know is just in New York City. And you look at the amount of people interacting with a space. And as a designer, I want that to feel the same no matter what age, race, you know, you are. And so when you're creating a space that's inclusive of everyone, especially in commercial spaces, you want a representative who's not going to be afraid to include everybody. And, and I think that puts a lot of responsibility on all of us as humans to create habitats that work for anyone. I think in the next 10 years, the rise of the workroom will continue to be a major story. I think workrooms are going to continue to dapple the countryside. I think they're going to be more and more prominent in mid to large markets, not just the majors. I think you're going to start to see some remarkable workrooms in smaller markets because we have to. If, if we have learned anything about our supply chain over the last three years, it's that it's broken. And make no mistake about this. This is very important. If you hear nothing else from what I say about this topic, hear this. Our supply chain is broken and it's not going to be fixed as is. It can't be because it wasn't set up for this. The supply chain from which we get our products, domestic and internationally, has been established over decades and decades 
literally hundreds of years, starting with when when the country was founded and we're getting product from, from England before it was founded, when we first established ourselves here, you know, product had to get here. That's when the supply chain started to to be established. Then then later rail, road, air, water, ports. The internet was was never identified as as a thing, right? So Amazon was never identified as a thing. Wayfair, Overstock, I mean you you name the the outlet. First dibs. So if that was not identified as a potential disruptor for the supply chain and certainly breaking the supply chain for a couple of years through a pandemic, now we're rebuilding it. Are we going to rebuild it the same old way? I don't, I don't think we can. I think it has to change so that chairs don't fall off ships and get stuck in ports for three months at a time. It's going to change. And one of the major changes is going to be getting product directly from local or regional workrooms. It's big. And now's a good time for those who procure product on behalf of their clients to start making those inroads and connections with their local and regional workrooms. Wellness. Wellness is my favorite topic. It, it is, because that's one of those aspects of design that is inextricably tied to the human experience. Wellness is the most important function. It has become, as I said, an inextricable part of design. Since March 13th, 2020, it's both incredible and stunning to attribute a, a major movement to a specific day, but the entirety of the U.S. and the world can look back on that day the U.S. closed, what happened next was, was a terrifying, confusing, and disruptive time during which the pandemic taught all of us that our homes were not designed to function in times of universal turmoil. Following that, the creative community does what the creative community does, and it looks for ways to fix problems. These fixes came in, in the way of functional redesigns, rethinking what home is and how it, it can better serve those living there. Wellness in design, air, water, sound, experience, these four concepts represent a wholesale change in design thinking and location thinking as well. So as I mentioned, in Southern California, it was March 13th, a Friday, and I thought, if, if this is going to happen, might as well get on all sides and see what we can learn from it. I started a series called Designing for Disaster. The next two clips feature guests from that series. The series was, was designed to air on Convo by Design, and it was basically to feature and showcase all of the things that were happening during the pandemic from the design and architecture community in real time so that we could look back. And I wanted to know what we were going to learn from this. First up is Thomas Kligerman, who shares a personal story of being locked down while in the midst of designing his own personal new home. And keep in mind, this was recorded during the pandemic. This is recorded 
within the first 12 weeks of the pandemic as it's happening in real time? Pretty much everything at design is, is you know, figuring out a solution to something, whether it's stylistic or functional. You know, we're, I'm facing the same problem right now. I have kind of a, a little bit of a double whammy. I'm in a two-bedroom apartment right now. Uh, excuse me, a two-room apartment, kind of an open living, dining, kitchen area. Then we have a bedroom. And um, my wife and I are, she doesn't work, but she has projects she does. And I'm trying to run my office out of here. And there's constant overlap. You know, I'm, um, I, I'm making too much noise in here. She's making too much noise in there. We don't really have desks for both of us. She has a desk, but my desk is at work. So suddenly we have a temporary desk sitting in, in the apartment. But it's a double whammy because this isn't even our permanent apartment. We are renovating an apartment right now. And so this is a rental we're living in temporarily. And this whole thing has made me think about what we designed for our new apartment. And I'm sort of questioning now that the thing is sort of 90% complete. <laughs> did we do the did we make the right decisions? Because I, we might have designed things a little differently if, if, if COVID-19 had happened, you know, two and a half years ago. Joe Berkowitz joined me for an episode of Designing for da Disaster as well and shares some truly valuable design advice about space planning and ways to keep everything in scale. It's funny looking back and listening back rather at this now because... It, it makes so much sense, but we can go outside without masks. We can go buy things. At the time, stores were closed. Uh, getting things ordered was the only way to, to procure new product for the house and trying to figure out what you wanted and not get rid of everything you already had. But what you had wasn't working. It was a confusing time. It was a confusing design time. And in addition to everything else. And it would be a mistake not to mention that while all this is going on, we're all worried about catching this new virus. Crazy. This is what it sounded like with Joe Berkowitz. One of my philosophies, you know, whenever I meet a new client is I always say I'm not a throw, throw out guy. You know, I'm not, uh, we all want to sell merchandise. We all want to you know, make money. And obviously it's, it's a business, but um, I'm not one of these people comes in and says, everything has to go. You know, I really look at, at a room and try to figure out you know, which pieces are important or attractive to me. I always ask, is there anything here that has sentimental value, you know, before I start assuming that things are going to, you know, get, get given away. But, um, you know, in this case, you know, when you're working with an existing space, I think that our spaces get stale anyway. You know, you, you, somebody, either somebody, a designer sets it up for you, or you may set it up yourself. And 10 years later, nothing has moved. You know, every chair is in the same position. It's actually sort of awkward when you think about it because it would be like wearing the same outfit every day, you know? And, uh, so this is a great opportunity to tweak that and, uh, which designers are generally doing for themselves all the time in our own homes. You know, it's sort of like an experiment all the time, but I, I, I love to go into a room and just sort of disassemble it. You know, I think that's the best way to do it. You know, look at the room first See what its strong points are, or what what makes the style of that room as it exists now. Is it built around a rug? Is it built around a specific focal point? Um, and then disassemble the whole thing. You know, they say you should take twenty percent of your accessories away every year because um, you know we just keep loading rooms up sometimes, and before you know it, you've, you've sort of overloaded it. 
But I would say, you know, for me, I, I would go in and clear all the accessories out, check out how the, what, what direction things are facing, and then pull the furniture out of the room and start over and just intentionally refocus it. So while we're all worried about catching this new virus, worried about our friends and family dying from it, this podcast kept me connected to you. And for that, I am so grateful. It kept me connected to my friends, old and new. Being confined to a small beach bungalow in Southern California wasn't completely horrible. As a matter of fact, the connection with my family during this time was something I will, I will forever cherish. The uncertainty was awful. But I was home with my family, and, and through this show, I was able to keep the conversation going. And I hope it was useful for you, too. Throughout the pandemic, actually before and most certainly after, wellness has been at the top of every priority list. Because of that, and because I so appreciate my, sh- my partnership, my longtime partnership, actually, with Thermosol, I want you to hear part of my conversation with Mitch Altman. And he's going to, I'll let him tell you what he does and what Thermosol is all about. You know, our, our products have always led the industry, and my goal is to make the best product out there for, for what we're uh, trying to accomplish, which, was, which is to uh, provide relaxation and wellness in your own shower. So, you know, it's a, it, your own shower is someplace that you use every day. You know, I, I was always... Um, I was always cognizant of the fact that, you know, a tub and, 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 you know, a soaking tub or a whirlpool tub is a, is a nice amenity and so forth. But, you know, you go in your shower every day, you take a shower every day. So it's proximate to your life. And, you know, having a, a steam shower is very relaxing, especially if you couple it with as the industry has developed lighting and music and things of that nature for relaxation and it's almost like I, I like to call it a full body facial because you really ex- expel all the toxins from your body. It's really relaxing. It's, it's a cleansing. And, it, it um, you know, if you couple it, like I said, with relaxing music or some aromatherapy or some chromotherapy and lighting for relaxation and wellness, it becomes a real, real beautiful experience in the privacy of your own home. In 2014... The West Hollywood Design District had a, a program called DIEM, D-I-E-M, which stands for Design Intersects Everything Made. They ran it for probably four or five years. And um, two, 2014, I think, was the second year that they did this. And part of this next segment features Roman Alonso, partner with Commune Design, and Mayor Russ. West Coast editor of AD, talking about the creative freedom that California, and more specifically Los Angeles, offer creatives. Moderated by Mallory Roberts Morgan, this conversation was a a simple creative comparison between New York and Los Angeles. What is so interesting about this to me is that as you listen, it is a binary conversation about cultural and artistic relevance in the United States. I enjoyed listening back to this conversation from 2014, and I hope you do as well. A look back at the halcyon days between the turmoil of the Great Recession and Civil War, 
before a global pandemic and record-setting financial and business disruption, a time when we could afford to have a simple conversation about who does it better, New York or L.A.? I, th I think there has been a change in the six years, but not as profound a change as uh, many would have us believe. When I see the cover of W Magazine, like, it's all about destination Los Angeles. It's all happening in Los Angeles. And I get press releases and uh, saying the art world is, you know, L.A., L.A., L.A. is the hot burning center, and it's simply not true. Um, <laughs> okay, and, and that's great, and there's no reason, you know, there's this, there's this urge to look at Los Angeles in comparison to New York, and I think Roman is absolutely right that part of what makes LA so special is its un-New Yorkness. It's, you know, that it isn't such this, a crucible of like art and commerce and at each other all the time. And I think you're absolutely right. I don't think Commune could have planted its seed, um, sorry, um, um, <laughs> and flourished uh, quite the same way because you did make up the rules. And when I was, all those years I was in New York, there were lots of design firms that started out talking about, we're going to do things differently. We're going to do interiors, we're going to do some branding, we're going to do graphics, we're going to do products, and all these things will be in equal measure a part of what we do. And in very short order, those firms figured out that in a marketplace as specific as New York, and because of New York's geographical location vis-a-vis -vis Europe, it's also, you know, the, the energy there is, is different and the modes of commerce are are different, but all those firms in very short order started, you know what, we're basically an interior design firm. We might like do a little graphic identity if we have commercial clients, but you know, it was not the kind of place that was really open to some, you know, funky fresh new idea of how to work. And that's, you know, that's one of the great things about Los Angeles, and I, I hope we're not losing that in the rush to, you know, I hear Michael Govan talking about, like, you know, I want to build a Frank Gehry high-rise on Wilshire and Fairfax. New York has one, and I'm jealous. I want one, too. Um, and I think, one, the Frank Gehry high-rise in New York sucks, and B, why would we want, you know, that kind of density that kind of, you know and I'm not saying that you know there's plenty of great Frank Gehry LA you know God knows has it um, but high rise this idea that we must we must build we must well exactly because if what's you know making LA well <clears throat> one of the uh, uh, gallery owners in New York that I spoke to likened L.A. to Berlin. He said, L.A. is the Berlin of the United States in as much as it's where all the creatives are go going now, the artists, the makers, um, and everything of interest creatively is, is really bubbling here in Los Angeles. The but he, and he said, but the galleries who come here or the commerces that deal with the creative worlds, they're coming here just to do projects or just to kind of have showcases, um, to do kind of think tanks. 
Um, but the actual market for all of these things that are being created is not here. And he likened it to Berlin because Berlin's kind of the same scenario in as much as it, all the creative stuff is happening there, but you still have to have a gallery in Paris or London to sell anything. Um, so if, if this is indeed you know, true of Los Angeles, which I, I believe it to be. I've interviewed enough, um, you know, uh, amazing artists and decorative artists, uh, makers, creators, uh, to know that they have flocked here for, for the, the low rents and the space and the weather and the creative freedom. Um, but are we going to lose that as fast as we've gained it, uh, you know, with, for example, rents starting to skyrocket? Roman. Well, there's always going to there's always going to be more room here, um, just physically. It's more open, um, so that. But it will shake out. I mean, a lot of it is hype, uh, and it always shakes out in the end. It ha it's happened in many other places, um, but I think that people will always find um, an openness here, because it, geographically it is open. Um, and, you know, when I first moved out here, and I've said this before, um, I've never credited the person that said it to me, but it was Christina Kim from DOSA. When I first moved out here, um, I, I, I wrote things for the New York Times Magazine, and we interviewed her, Lisa Eisner and I, and she said something to me that always stuck, which was, you know, the difference between New York and L.A. is that in New York, you're always looking up. You're always going up. You're always climbing up. Everything is up, up, up. Here, it's all out. There's a horizon line. So, of course, there's more possibility. And it's true. And so, geographically, that will always be the case. You just have to get in your car and drive out to the desert and you see it. Or go out to Santa Monica and look out into the ocean and you see it. And if you feel it, then you take advantage of it. Um, but not everyone will see that. Um, not everyone will stay. Not everyone will understand it. I loved listening back to that. But at the same time, while it seems like so long ago, it really wasn't. But some things have changed. The design flyovers have emerged as a place where some... Let me back up a second. I have, been, I have called them the design flyovers for, for years, almost a decade now, because the design flyovers, flyovers are every state and city that does not include New York, San Francisco, Seattle, um, L.A., N New York, D.C., Chicago, Miami. It's all the things, it's all points in between, right? The design flyovers have emerged as a place where some factors have converged at a, an important moment in time. Designers who are doing incredible things in Oklahoma, Colorado, Kentucky, Texas. Speaking of Texas, I was so fortunate to have a conversation with friend Kyle Bunting, who invited some of his friends, Lauren Rote, Jan Showers, and Fern Santini, for a really fun conversation about design in the Lone Star State. And here's a little bit of what that sounded like. Well, Texas, first of all, is very diverse, which I love. And I think sometimes we're thought of just as a red state, and that's so not true. Um, we're not just a red state. And um, I don't want to get into that particular subject, but uh, anyway. Oh, come on. 
Fern and I get into it all the time. But anyway, we're on the same side, though. (laughs) Yeah. But it's great that it's diverse, and each city is so different. And I've done projects in all these cities, and I've never done a project in San Antonio, I have to say, Uh, but I have done Houston and Austin and Dallas, and I love all these cities. I mean, they're, but they're so different. I mean, I don't even know where to start. I want to say that Texas as a whole is very, very known as a design as a design center because <clears throat> we started out here in the 50s uh the crows did uh trammel crow started out with a design center that the old deck center we call it the decorative center mm-hmm. and let me tell you something texas is and when kips bay decided to do one more city for new york and palm beach Kips Bay is the biggest show. Lauren, I'm gonna I'm gonna come down to you um, because so much of the work you do is international, as as well as as regional with within Texas. Um, th- thoughts on that? How how Texas really is sort of similar yet yet different from other major world class cities where you do your your work? Yeah, and I think my viewpoint is a little bit different from Jan's because Houston did not really have such a design center. And in fact, it still doesn't have what Dallas has. So, you know, when I come up to Dallas, I'm just thrilled to be able to go through all those different shops. We're getting them. Houston's finally getting them, but it's, yeah. it's been slow. But, you know, the interesting thing about um, Texas is that fa- fast backwards five years ago when people would say, why do you live in Houston? Oh, my God, a designer lives in Houston. And I'm like, you know, a better place to live than to visit. You know, why don't you come and enjoy it? And the truth of the matter is Houston and Dallas now, too, it's probably the third largest art center, you know, in in the nation. There's New York and there's Los Angeles and then there's Houston and Dallas. And, you know, we have amazing museums in Dallas, Fort Worth and amazing art collections with the MFA and the Demonial. And when I first came back, I grew up here, of course. And when I first came back to Houston from Los Angeles, you know, thinking, oh, my God, here I come. I'm going to be wearing beige pantsuits and you know blah blah (laughs) I found myself the very first week at a dinner sitting between Robert Rauschenberg and uh, the then um, director of the museum and I'm like okay this is not so bad this is a pretty cool city so it's kind of Houston is definitely still waters run deep and I think that's Texas in general we brag but we don't really brag we keep our beauty and we we understand what we have and we don't really have to brag about it because it's there but at uh, there's intense designers intense artists it, it's it's pretty deep when it comes to design Dallas more known than Houston. Houston's starting to be known. Interesting you say that. And I want to come back to that in a second. But jumping over to Fern, um, when Kyle and I first spoke, I was, I was mentioning to him that, that Austin really is one of, one of my favorite cities in the world. And one of the, one of the things that I love most about it, as you will find in much of Texas, except for Dallas, I lived in Dallas and I can tell you this is not really the case, but Austin is one of those cities where there there has been a concerted effort to save iconic architecture, to save iconic design, to keep it a little bit weird, a little bit funky. Yet there is certainly one foot firmly planted in the past with eyes on the future at all times. And I feel like design and architecture within Austin really does have that that combined love and joy and spirit where you respect the past 
and also look optimistically towards the future. Well, and I think one thing for me, I've, I've been in Austin for uh, since the mid 70s. Um, I grew up in a small town close to Houston and left and I've been here ever since. And it's changed so much, but I've had a love affair with this town for so long. And what what I fell in love with, I think, is still here, even though it's um, it's different with all the people coming in. And some of that's been uh, a great change, actually. I mean, when I first moved to Austin, there were enchiladas and chicken fried steak. And that was it. And now we have this culinary center. I mean, we just the food scene here is amazing. The wine scene here is amazing. The art scene is it, and artisans and local artisans that do amazing work is just burgeoning. Um, I'm hoping that we can with Austin. It seems like everyone is moving in here and I'm hoping we can hang on to what I think attracts young creative people to Austin is still this celebration of diversity. It was here in the seventies and it's still here. It's creative diversity, gender diversity, sexual diversity, whatever kind it was kind of, you know, everybody was accepted. And I think um, as long as we hang on to that, it still attracts young creative people and it'll still keep Austin a little different than everywhere else is. I mean, it is, it's its own, it's, it's its own thing here. And a lot of that has to do with um, music and this feeling coming from the sixties and seventies of that. We don't have to play by the rules here. Um, And I think some of that is, is really great. If we can still hang on to that, um, then, then I'll still love to be here, but it's, it's definitely changing. The the plus side of that is in the seventies, it was incredibly provincial. It was a tiny town, even though there were a hundred thousand people here, you couldn't get a job here unless you worked for the university or state government. Everyone would graduate and cry that they had to leave, but there were no jobs here. Now before tech happened before, um, you know, Bobby Inman and all of that happening before Michael Dale was building computers in his, you know, we had Michael Dale building computers in his dorm room and Tito making bike in his fraternity house. Yeah. <laughs> so it just turned out really great for both of them <laughs> and for the city at large. And so all the tech that comes here comes here because there is this amazingly educated workforce. You're listening to episode 400 of Combo by Design. We'll be right back. I know you love talking about great partnerships the same way I do. Let me tell you about an incredible design partner who is working with us on the Convo by Design Remote Design House Tulsa project, Franz Wigner, a company created in 1899 in Attendorn, Germany. They started manufacturing brass beer taps. In 1921, the company expanded to Buenos Aires, manufacturing brass faucetry. The company launched in the U.S. in 1992, and Franz Wigner Premium Collection began in 2008. Franz Wigner crafts high-quality premium faucets with the objective to create a design-oriented luxury product that exceeds the standards set by world-class designers and architects. Pretty heady stuff, and they do it. If you see a Franz Wigner faucet, it is stunning. You use Franz Wigner faucets, and they perform flawlessly. Product you can depend on after over 120 years designing a truly stunning faucet line. For more information and to check out the entire line of faucets, visit franzwigner.com. So I'm going to spell it for you, right? (laughs) F-R-A-N-Z-V-I-E-G-E-N-E-R.com. Thank you, Franz Wigner. 
Over the past couple of years, I've also done a feature called The Showroom, which was a live series that, that sprang from the, the Zoom presentations. And I wanted to speak with amazing creatives from anywhere across the, across the world. And so first one up on achieving the shared desires of her clients. She first wants to understand desire and then listens to guidance. This is Susan Ferrier. The only thread through the work that I do that I recognize is the atmosphere that's created. My process always starts with talking to them. And sometimes if you have a couple that you're, uh, they seem to be really different, but they've got to share something or they wouldn't be together. Listening is a really big part of what I do. And when I'm done, it really should, the interior should really be a self-portrait of the people I'm doing it for. Thank you, Susan. Next up, again, with the showroom, Carol Woodhouse. So really, also, this is something that I do when I'm designing. Um, I always want to create an experience when you walk into a space, I want you, I want to evoke a feeling. That's definitely like a huge thing for me. Um, and it's so funny. So this room, like we had to name it and it was like a dream that that was my room. And there's a mirror, this etched mirror that says dream of me. And, you know, being in that room and watching people come in, like everyone was like, I feel like I'm in a dream. And they didn't know that that was the name. Of the room, but they're like, I feel like I'm in a dream. I'm in a cloud. I'm floating. I've never, you know, felt like this before in a room. I feel like I'm being like cradled and like held in this room. You know, everyone had the same kind of feeling and experience in here. Um, the other thing for me too, is I'm very into materials, um, I love combining texture and just all different kinds of materials together. And I always say this, that, you know, I, in all of my rooms or, you know, designs, I, I call it eye candy, <laughs> but, <laughs> and I don't think that like, you know, you're doing a room and you should just throw in this and that, like everything is definitely very thought out, like every little piece down to, a book that I'll put on a table, you know, like everything kind of has to have something interesting about it. And um, whether it's a shape or a color or a texture, I want everything to like every single piece that I put into a room should have that. And it doesn't mean that it has to be the most expensive object or material, but it's just, you know, and I, I do tend to gravitate towards things that have, you know, unusual shapes or some kind of shape to it, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of known for everyone's like, oh my gosh, you love balls and round shapes and circles. And, and it's so funny. Yeah. It's like, I, I do. And in my own home, I didn't even realize that I was doing it, but everyone's like, wow, you really like balls. <laughs> and I'm like, I guess I do. Cause there's round shapes everywhere or actual like cylinders and circles. And I am drawn to it. And maybe it is like a little influence from, 
you know, like the seventies and eighties, but I wouldn't consider this kind of like vintage looking. Cause I'm not, I kind of went through my whole vintage phase through my career. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm drawn to different shapes and, and, um, trying to be creative, you know, in my designs and, you know, just do my thing. It just like comes out. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and with that, and with that, um, that rug is absolutely spectacular. And I, it's funny because sometimes when when you look at a when you look at work, you look at the, this design. I can't imagine any other rug but that one being in that room. Yeah, and it's. Amazing. I mean, not only is the shape, I mean, but it's shearling. It was a shearling rug, so like, yeah, everyone was like getting on the floor and petting it or taking their shoes <laughs> off and walking yeah. on it because it was just so luxurious and soft. And, you know, it, it was one of my favorite rugs that I've ever designed, but um, yeah, it, it was, it was so fun creating that space. I would be remiss if I didn't mention some of the amazing conversations I've had with the architects. I've had the opportunity to speak with some of the greatest architecture minds working today. Following are just a few. I'm going to start this off with Roger Seifter from Robert A.M. Stern's Architects, talking about a Southern California John L. Wolfe home and the thoughtful, loving, restorative process that goes into all their projects. So uh, that house... Um was originally designed by John Wolfe, John Elgin Wolfe, in 1959-1960. And it was designed originally for the actress uh, Eleanor Parker, who was the Baroness in The Sound of Music, among other things. And uh, uh, our client, for whom we've done a number of projects, is based on the East, East Coast, uh, and has a lot of business on the West Coast and simply got tired of staying in hotels, decided at one point, I, I need a place to live. Uh, so he and a realtor looked at a number of properties in the LA area. He narrowed it down to whatever, five or six different projects. And then he asked me to go out and meet with his realtor and look at the same properties, which I did in one day and walked into this house and thought, oh my God, I wouldn't change a thing. It, it was just this fabulous butterfly plan, 5,000 square foot house. It was like an apartment, like a great, great apartment on a site with a nice view. Um, and uh, uh, told him he should buy it. He thought the same thing, they bought it. The idea was just to tweak it, uh, make it livable for him and his wife on occasion. And at the end of the day, we had essentially, you know, torn out all the finishes to the studs, rebuilt it completely, but essentially kept the plan because the plan worked so well. Uh, and the proportions, which were key in an Elgin, in a John Wolf house, uh, but freshened it up, lightened it up uh, and kept it, we think, true to its mid-century uh, soul. We also unearthed, it was interesting because we unearthed a few um, uh, parts of the design that had been hidden uh, in, in the course of Wolf's original uh, construction. Uh, for example, there was, we found this drawing, we worked with John Gilmer, who used to work in our office, and he's, 
he was the interior designer on the project. Um, and he had access to the Wolf archives, I think at Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara. Uh, and we, so we found some original drawings of the house, not working drawings, but just architect's drawings, including a sketch of the living room, which had an exposed beam ceiling and a fireplace, none, neither of which were in the house when we came there. And our client, who she gets very involved in these, in these projects, uh, said, oh my God, we gotta get rid of the ceiling and open up the fireplace, which we did. Uh, we also exposed this rubble stone wall around the fireplace wall, which was horrible. So we covered it up as quickly as we uncovered it. Uh, but uh, it, the house had some surprises like that in the course of the construction. And so we, we feel we gave it even more character than it had uh, when we first came to it. Thank you, Roger. This is Paul McLean. It, it also, also almost sounds like a cliche, but I, I really wanted to be an architect since I was a very little boy, like four or five years old. And I have always been interested in housing, which basically just interested in in housing and um it is interesting i i don't know why i mean i grew up in suburban dublin in a tiny little row house and had no experience of architecture had no architects in my family but just from the time i was four or five according to my mom um i always wanted to be an architect and um I went to school and all I did was draw pictures of houses in my art classes. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, they try and make me draw other things. I occasionally tolerate the, the odd still life, but then I just go back to drawing houses again. And, you know, along the way, I, I do remember we, we, you know, we had this library, obviously local library, and it had a very small architectural section, maybe like 10 books. And, uh, but there was a Frank Lloyd Wright book. And, and I found that probably when I was nine or 10 years old. And, and I remember, you know, I still remember like the, the, almost the shock of like, like this is a house too. <laughs> you know, it's like, for me, it was like, like a revelation. And um, as I, as I got older and as I got into architecture school, I, I discovered this phenomenal history of contemporary architecture in modern architecture in Southern California. And it seemed to me like this was a place where, where people were doing this, the architecture that I loved and the openness and uh, the glass, the views, the connection to nature, all those things were, were feasible here in a way that they were not so feasible in a lot of other places. And it seemed like the, the combination of how Los Angeles developed and the various uh, layering of the city and the different industries that happened here, like between Hollywood and aerospace and oil and gas, and, uh, you know, people were just coming here for, for a hundred years, like searching for a new beginning. And they took that into architecture. And, you know, you, you look around, there's such an amazing history, not just of modern contemporary design, but of, you know, uh, you know, Mediterranean design and uh, the houses you see in Hancock Park, places like that, the different styles, the different textures that people developed. It's like there are these fantasies. You came here to a blank slate and you could create your fantasy, whatever that was. So, so there's something very appealing about Southern California. And when I, when I finished university, I happened to have a friend who lived in Laguna Beach at the time. So I decided to head out here and see some of this for myself. And I uh, ended up working for different architects for four or five years. And, you know, the first couple of years I was doing different types of architecture jobs, but always with the goal of getting into contemporary housing. And, uh, you know, basically that's how it began. And um, I still haven't lost that interest in, in homes. I, I still find 
that they are unique programmatically from an architecture perspective. And I, I think sometimes people don't realize, but homes are very complicated compared to many types of architecture. Um, I'd obviously, large buildings, you know, can be, uh, you know, like a, a train station or an airport can be complicated programmatically, but many large buildings, office blocks and cathedrals are not complicated in terms of programmatically. They, they serve a function. Uh, while homes have to be many, many, many things, and many things to many people, so there, there's a, I have a fascination with that, and uh, I do I do like people, I do like meeting people, I do like I'm interested in other people, interested in their lives and how they how they you know how they become who they are, and we try and reflect that in our architecture, reflect our clients and their ideas, and so for me it kind of is a good fit dealing with people and. Um, dealing with the complexity of the program. And also, I think um, you have to have a certain mindset to do residential architecture that's maybe a little different than other types of architecture because for most people, building a home is something they often just do one time in their, house, in their whole life. And, you know, it's a very expensive undertaking and to build a custom home from scratch it's something that unfortunately not many people get to do but it is uh, still the biggest decision financially they're probably going to make in their life and so it's also very nerve-wracking as well as being exciting and and they tend to only do it once so it's a different scenario than say you know, a corporation that's building office blocks for its employees or whatever, but they might do this several times, once every five or 10 years, they redo it and they have a process for it. Most people build just one home and they can be, as I said, terrified and excited at the same time. And that's part of our job is, you know, to manage that process and help them through it and make it a, make it a, a joyful and harmonious experience. You're listening to episode 400 of Combo by Design. We'll be right back. So listen, wallpaper is having a moment, a well-deserved moment that is allowing designers to craft and create in new and amazing ways. Convo by Design has a new partner this year. This partnership includes participation in our remote design house Tulsa project, of which you will be hearing a lot about this year. I've been working closely with an exclusive group of partners, and I am absolutely thrilled to be working with York Wall Coverings. This company has been crafting exquisite wall coverings for over a century, with an archive that dates back to the early 18th century. This deeply rich history provides inspiration for the future, and the designs available through the York Wall Coverings studio have long been lauded for their authenticity and craftsmanship. This art, artistry, and history combined with a commitment to continually reimagining the manufacturing process allows York Wall Coverings to provide a consistently exquisite product. For options and inspiration, find them online, yorkwallcoverings.com. You can also find their store locator tool online at yorkwallcoverings.com for a location near you. If you've been listening to Convo by Design for a while now, you have heard me tell you about Article. Great style. Really, it's as simple as that with Article. Things have been challenging for design professionals and their clients for, what, two years, two plus years now? You know this already. What you might not know is that it doesn't have to be if you're looking for exceptionally beautiful modern furniture. 
article provides a simple and easy way to creating a beautiful modern space because article works direct with their manufacturers on production of unique and stunning pieces then they work directly by providing this well-crafted design directly to you this direct relationship means you aren't wondering where your furniture is and you're getting it for an incredible value what could possibly be better than that in many cases the shipping is flat rate which means no surprises right? Even more, their culture and service are rooted in their core values. Customer obsession, doing it differently, ownership mindset, winning together. If you're a designer, architect, or residential developer, you must check out their trade program. Discounts, special support, and exclusive perks. Article has the beautiful modern furniture you're looking for at an incredible price, at an incredible value, and you need to check them out. Check out article.com, or if you go to the show notes, there is a specific link which will take you, if you're in the trade, directly to their trade program. You have to see it to really believe it. Thank you, Article. Next up, Dan Brune. So uh, actually, the first residential project that I did in Los Angeles uh, happened out of pure happenstance, and I think my career is based on that. There's a lot of things that happened. I was at the right place at the right time. And so I had just completed a showroom up in San Francisco, Bay Area, and uh, the client uh, wasn't hiring a photographer for this one project. And I was down here in L.A. with a uh, portfolio, at Sammy's camera, and showing the clerk. I was renting equipment, lighting equipment. What do I need to use? Blah, blah, blah. And as that was happening, um, this, my future client walked up to the counter and interrupted and I was like why would somebody be interrupting me right now you know and I'm having this great conversation and he turns to her and he says hey you're looking for an architect meet Dan and this is one of the reasons why I love LA you know you have these great opportunities and this just can happen and uh, so sure enough I flipped through some things she says well what have you done before and you know showed her some things well we own a piece of property on the beach in Venice virgin land by the way never built on we never even had to tear down anything and uh, she said, well, I'm looking to build a house with my husband. Uh, and all we really want are, uh, a sh- is a shower that has views to the outside, but you still have the privacy. And uh, balconies that are like wrap around. So I'm like, wow, some of these language uh, things that she describes are completely the Bauhaus, the way I grew up. And so the project was born out of just those two uh, necessities. And uh, then the name Flip Flop comes from... Actually, you know, if you can imagine you have a house that's on the beach and you want to have as many views as possible, so you have to have glass, right? At the same time, you want to have privacy. And I wish we had imagery to show, but it, and at the same time, we have, uh, they collect a lot of photos, like a gallery. And so we created these walls that essentially flip-flop, and they're, they're pivot walls. They're 10 feet by 10 feet, and they open. And the house essentially breathes and lets air in and out, and you're able to get the views out and at the same time have place to store art. So it solved everything, and it was just, you know, it started DBA. Thank you, Dan. This is Woods and Dangren. You know, we always talk about natural materials, natural light, ventilation, all those things that, that for us were, were just common sense. People are now realizing that, that they may not have had that in the design of their, their space, and so now they're moving to find that. And so there is, there's a rush on housing right now. Yeah, well, what's interesting, too, is, you know, if you look back at 1918, 1919, 1920, after, after the Spanish flu, 
you had some massive changes. You know, you, you went from, from that whole uh, um, all wood in bathrooms with the, with, the, with the chamber pots and, you know, just, ugh, right? Yep. That's if you were lucky enough to have indoor plumbing. Yep. But it, it changed the, people really started to look at it and they started to look at new materials and new ways of, of doing things. And to your point, um, I, I'm curious how it's changed your approach. And at the same time, you know, like, so I've, I've, had, a, I've had a home studio for seven, eight years now. Um, I've, I've got the, at the same time, when I'm recording, I record on days that I know the trash truck isn't coming. Of course. I, I record early enough so that street sweeping doesn't yep. happen yet. I know when every one of my neighbor's gardeners comes. So I record, you know, I have to pick my schedules, right? Yeah. But it, what's interesting is, to your point, um, water, air, light, noise. I mean, all of these things are now affecting what, what, what clients would actually come to you and say, hey, I've, I want to change the way this is going on. How has that changed your approach? to design or has it? Maybe you did this before. No, I think we did, but I think the, the biggest change was, I think, well, first of all, when this happened, I think we were worried about how it would change our process with not being in an office, similar to what you're saying. We were trying to, you're sort of scheduling your day around kind of uh, certain noises and, and things that maybe we didn't worry about when we were in an office and, and had a conference room. And, um, and I think the collaboration, so I think we were really worried about what that looked like for us. I think, let's be honest, if this happened 15, 20 years ago, I think architects would be in a much different place because technology has afforded us the ability to, you know, within a day, within a day, we had all of our team in their apartments up and running with their desktops, phones connected to the server, sharing files as if they were sitting next to each other. The one thing you do miss is the, is kind of the, the creative kind of collaboration. I mean, those are the things that, you know, that can be challenging, but I think that we have been kind of pleasantly surprised at you know, how efficient we have become um, during this process. And in fact, we really haven't, in, in many ways, we've become more efficient. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's something that we, you know, we feel very grateful for in, in this profession that we have even the kind of opportunity to, to sustain a business while this sort of pandemic is happening. Yeah, and in terms of the way that we approach design, I think that really a, a worldwide event like this, I think just gives us more confidence in what we have been doing from a design approach. We've, we've always taken the approach, the more vernacular approach of, of kind of regional architecture, whether it's out in Palm Springs or it's in, you know, Los Angeles area or, 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 or elsewhere. We've always tried to draw inspiration on the, the vernacular or the regional and more, you know, uh, passive green technologies than active we've we've always tried to rely on you know just good site planning solar orientation overhangs to the south and and large windows to the north and cross ventilation and prevailing winds and and all those things that to us just make sense from an architecture standpoint whether um you know whether a client's asked us specifically to do that or not but i think that that clients are you know, responding to this and really talking about, okay, well, in, in many of our recent conversations, well, we're going to provide a home office in the, in the home. Should we provide two? Where should those be? Should one be more forward facing towards the street? Should one be more private? Are they connected to the master suite? Are they disconnected separate from the, the main house structure? So you still have that, that distance of, you know, that, that 
that sequence or that ritual of walking out of the home across some landscape, across the swimming pool and into your separate office, even though you're still on your property. So, um, you know, it, it's those kind of subtle things that, um, that are starting to be driven in the conversation. This is Jamie Bush. I always wish I worked for some big, like a Gruen or, you know, uh, some enormous sort of firm to, to see how the structure of these things work, even though it sounds like a nightmare to me, but just to get that experience because I, I always work for smaller firms that, that, you know, had organization, but also winged it and, and, um, and I don't know. I mean, we luckily I, I now am at a point business-wise where we have it's super professional and we have like all of the the um, facilities and and backup to sort of make it run properly but um, but it's weird the, the, the art and commerce don't necessarily always align and um, and it's a tricky dance between the two all the time we are living at a time of incredible growth both technologically and creatively, with respect to interior design, exterior design, and architecture. There is no question. There are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made. One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful, incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors to fit any design style or aesthetic. A history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community. So you know it's been tested in some of the truly the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living, their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom in Fountain Valley, California. So there you go. 10 years and 400 episodes. <laughs> synopsized into what I haven't finished recording this yet, but it'll be about, uh, it'll be about an hour and a half, I guess. 10 years, 400 episodes, 90 minutes. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all of the guests who have been willing to starting with a, a brand new podcast in 2013, come on and, uh, and, and share their experience. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you to all of the partners and sponsors of Convo by Design. Thermosol, Moya Living, York Wall Coverings, Franz Wigner, Article Furniture. Thank you for your partnership and support. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen and subscribe to Convo by Design. I produce this show for you every week. When I record, I am imagining having a conversation with you and you listening in. And um, I produce it for you, so I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for, for coming back every week. Those in the design industry, 
Um, remember why you do what you do and for whom you do it. You make the world go round. And um, I am extremely thankful for all that you do. Um, that's it. Episode 400. Have a great week. Be well. And take today first. Mm-hmm.